And she said you can always go from a bigger company to a smaller company, probably for a pay raise, probably for a promotion, you know. But it's really tough to go from a really small company to a bigger company. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of ICB2, a.k.a. I Can't Be the Only One. Um where we say your inner thoughts out loud. So I'm back here with another episode today, and I've got another special guest. Um, I've got Gokul. Um, we're going to be talking about a couple different things today, a couple interesting things. But before we dive into that, I'll let him go ahead and introduce himself. So, Gokul. Hey, guys. My name is Gokul Mahanti. Um, I'm all the way coming here from L.A. Great to join Tyogen, really great friend of mine. Um I'm the CEO and founder of Next Idea, the world's first venture competition firm, and I just love traveling, meeting new people. That's part of my job, so I'm excited to dive more into that as we go along today. He said it. Um, no, literally, we're we're really going to talk about focusing on today about founding his company, but then also um, how he pitched to two billionaires. So really interesting stuff. And me and Gokul met through Chris because um, they both work at Deloitte and stuff. So um, we met back. About a little over a year ago now. Yeah, back yeah. in um, right before you, you early went to, October, October twenty two homecoming. Yeah, he went to UGA homecoming, so he, he know. Um, but anyway, to kind of just dive into it, can you explain what the company is, what you guys do, and how you came about? It? Yeah. So, let me ask you, um, when if you came up with an idea or let's say a product, um, how does that work as far as when you guys go to create it? Like if you outsource, what would the process be? Maybe hiring like a consulting firm, right? Something like that. Probably. I would say, yeah. Uh, I would try. For me personally, I like to bootstrap <laughs> just because I want to be able to save as much cash as I can in the exactly. beginning. And I don't want to give away equity so mm-hmm. quick. Um, and I also don't want to outsource so quick because I don't want my burn rate to be crazy. Like, cause I, exactly. like whatever cash that I have, like if it doesn't go well, I'm not saying that I don't believe in it, but that's me. Um, but I would say if cash is not necessarily a huge problem, then definitely hiring consultants and mm-hmm. kind of, so letting them vet through the process and whatnot, and then yeah. kind of taking it to the next step. Yeah. Before I hop into next idea, I wanted to actually talk about my experiences as a consultant. Um, And that kind of begins my journey about how I came up with next idea. Yeah. So ever since I was a kid, I was really into building things, right? Um, Okay, engineer. Exactly. When I was really little, like six, seven years old, my parents would get, get me Lego sets. And I really enjoyed building following the manual and just building stuff. But then after that, I would deconstruct the set and then I would just go wild with those pieces, build whatever I want to. Yeah. Right. Just having those building blocks, seeing that like in my mind, like I was just imagining everything I could possibly build given the resources I had. Um, And that carried on into college. Um, I started off as a computer engineer. I went to UC San Diego. And when I was there, I noticed I really started leaning more towards the business sides of things as far as, you know, problem solving, creating, almost like business strategy. Okay. And that kind of brought me towards the realm of consulting. Um, The way I ended up at Deloitte 
interesting story. So this would have been way back in my junior year of college, um, almost like two, three years ago at this point. I was talking to my dad and, you know, I'm sure you know, too, like, you know, South Asian parents, African parents, they're probably like, go get a higher education, this and that, get your yeah. master's. So um, I remember talking to my dad and he was really pushing me towards getting going, getting a master's and like CS or uh, business analytics, what have you. And at that point, I started applying to a bunch of colleges. Are you familiar with Handshake? Yes, uh, very familiar with Handshake, yeah. So just for the viewers, if you guys don't know, Handshake is essentially a job recruitment platform that colleges use, um, whether you're looking for internships or full-time jobs. So I hopped on Handshake, and you know, just because I was bored one day in between applying, I hopped on there, and I saw two roles that I thought were interesting. One was a consulting position. The other one was a Goldman Sachs uh, IB um, position. Gotcha. Um, and then the third um, company that I interviewed for, West Monroe, was a boutique consulting firm in San Francisco. And that recruiter just uh, reached out to me. But during this process, you know, I was kind of lackadaisical with it. Um, did a little bit of preparation as far as reading up on what behavioral interviews are like and what... Um, you know, consulting case studies are like, but didn't put too much thought into it just because I was really focused on going to college after that. Um, but, you know, decided to do those interviews. They went great, and I ended up getting those positions. And at that point, um, I was stuck choosing between the two consulting firms. Right off the bat, I knew I didn't want to do investment banking mm. just because it's very, like, grunt work a lot of number crunching and end of the day you're not creating anything novel right yeah, and i was just not, a yeah. very creative person it's more so of like a like you said like it's a, it's more of like a numbers game you're not really exactly. doing too much so yeah yeah i get what you mean so at that point um th this was my mom's advice i talked to my mom and i was like mom like i'm stuck deciding between deloitte and west monroe um, which one was, should I go with? West Monroe was actually paying me like twenty five, thirty thousand uh dollars more than Deloitte was. And I was really stuck. I was like, should I go with West Monroe? They're paying me way more. Um, but Deloitte's like a bigger name. And my mom gave me advice that I think any young viewers who are watching this, if you guys are looking to go into a career field, I think you should listen to this. Um, but I remember to this day, she talked to me and she was like, look, son. You, you know, end of the day, your dreams are yours. You should go with what you want. But my advice is you can always go from like a bigger company to a smaller company, right? You can start off as like, um, you know, you look at these other, um, a lot of people who've come up, like the CEO of Pepsi. She went from, uh, she, was a, she was at IBM, was a consultant there, moved over to Pepsi, and then she became CEO. And she said you can always go from a bigger company to a smaller company probably for a pay raise, probably for a promotion, you know. But yeah. it's really tough to go from a really small company to a bigger company. So you just want that brand on your resume off the jump. And that made my decision for me. Just decided to go with Deloitte at that point. Cool. But what I decided to do at that stage was um, defer my job for one year. And I was working on another startup at the time. I'd started with two friends uh, back home. It was called Athlete Share, the stock market for athletes. Um, oh, essentially, wow, it's kind of cool. Let me describe it. So you know, you, me or you, we can go out. 
hop on Fidelity or Vanguard and invest in Google or Apple. Yeah. You could do the same thing with athletes. So we went out there, signed exclusive contracts with these athletes. I met super dope people. If you guys know who Jalen Brown is, met him, met yeah. a bunch of NFL players. And, um, you know, through my professor who went to law school, he put me in contact with the former president of McKinsey, uh, which is one of the most, you know, foremost consulting companies I mean, in the world. Yeah. And then the last guy he put me in contact with, his name's Bill Strickland, but he was Michael Jordan's former agent. Uh, he's the first um, black agent to sign a hundred million dollar contract. He's the first agent to make over a billion dollars in contract closing in his career. And he represented people like, you know, I mean, obviously Michael Jordan came up with Michael Jordan. They signed with Nike, all that kind That's of stuff. That's crazy. But, you know, just getting that experience was insane. You know, getting to meet these cool people, these NBA players, NFL players, college athletes. Um, unfortunately, uh, athlete share, it was based on blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrency. And that kind of technology started getting a lot of speculation. So it was tough to go forward with that. Yeah. Um, so about a year into that process, uh, me and my two co-founders sat down, had a difficult conversation. And we all decided to, um, you know, go our separate ways, go on to other things. I went on to begin my career at Deloitte. Uh, my other co-founder uh, went on to found another company, which this year he just went full time on. Congrats to him. He's That's raised, awesome. yeah, he's raised five hundred thousand dollars this year. That's big. Um, That's yeah. big, especially in in these times because trying to raise money exactly. right now is like little to none. So yeah. that's huge. And I won't go too much into a story. I think you should probably have him on the show at some point too. But the way he did it was he actually was the um, ex, um, what do you call it? He was the chief of staff for the Fed, the founder of FedEx. Oh. And this guy is retired now. He's in his 60s, but he's a big time investor. So he worked for that guy. He'd fly out, close deals for this guy. Um, you know, just all this stuff a chief of staff would do. He did that. And he went into it knowing that he didn't want to do it forever. Like he wanted to do it for a year, understand what it takes to run a new venture. Yeah. And then that guy became his first investor. My other friend went on to start his MBA. They all went our separate ways. Cool. Yeah. Y'all did different <laughs> things. Exactly. So that brings me to Deloitte. Um, for, the, for the first couple months, you know, you're at a new company. Everything is like, you know, unicorns and rainbows. But Something like that, yeah. My eyes really opened when um, I worked for a government bureau. Won't go too much into it due to some classification stuff. But you, I worked for them for about six months. And during this process, I realized that there was so there's three of us on the team myself um a senior manager a manager and another consultant so sorry four people got you yeah and i've just always been very entrepreneurial so i really wanted to learn as much as i could so i started seeing a lot of behind the scenes things most analysts wouldn't like i actually got to see the contracts um that we we're signing with the government and it was a 1.2 million dollar contract and pretty much we were building a financial dashboard for the government. and Like an it, open.gov type of situation? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. If you're familiar with like Power BI or Tableau, like yeah. data visualization or doing that kind of stuff. Got you. Very yeah. customizable stuff for the government. They could go in, see different financial projections. But during this process, I realized that 
I was the only one actually working on the project. The other person, one of the guys, the senior manager, was just in charge of the budget. And the other two people on the team were just in charge of going to the client to sell them on more things. Oh, so they're just they're, they're just trying to woo them over. Exactly. Oh, so like they they got just... the fun part and they, they <laughs> stuck you with all the like Yeah. All the crappy stuff to do. But yeah, so this process is going on and we're, you know, approaching the six month, you know, deadline. And I mean, we didn't have the financial dashboard or anything ready. And so at that point, I just took it upon myself and just built the whole thing over the course of like two, three weeks. And we gave it to the government. And, you know, they were happy. It was a good product. But after that, I realized, wow, we had just blown $1.2 million. We didn't have to. Like, if I was the government or client, like, I, if, if I knew how stuff was going on in consulting, I'd be like, this is not how we should be spending taxpayer money. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, you're not, you didn't see how much of that $1.2 million did you see? Exactly. And you built out that you built it up. And the other thing I saw, too, was, so analysts at Deloitte, we get paid about 40 50 an hour. But each hour an analyst works on a project, the client gets billed $250 an hour. Yeah. So there's a $200 discrepancy. All of that is probably getting, it's like probably administrative blow, probably going to some partner's pocket, this and that. End of the day, very little amount of that actual budget's going to the actual creation of the product. You and the other thing early on you exactly. learn that early on in corporate, you start seeing yeah. you start seeing the numbers you start exactly. seeing some of these expense reports you're like wait a minute so no I, I get it but yeah and the actual like um the way that we make money is just off a of billable hour so let's say i work for one hour and don't create anything tangible or i work one hour and i create the most amazing product in the world both of those the client pays the same amount of money and that's when I came up with the idea for Next Idea. Um, Next Idea is the world's first venture competition firm. And what we do is if a client has a product they need built or a problem they need solved, we go to them, we get all the requirements, understand the problem. And then we have a massive competition where 400 to 600 engineers over the course of three days compete to build the best product. And then the best product gets acquired by the client and so we're not we're cutting out all the blow about you know how we're doing in consulting yeah. now it's just quality based based on efficiency and you get that efficiency by creating this competitive atmosphere yeah competitive nature like exactly like, okay and the other thing is too um a typical development cycle a team might be you know developing one thing then developing another feature but the way we've structured it through a competition we could have five features that are going into the final product be built simultaneously. You could silo them off into different competition tracks. So one team is working on creating this product, product part of the product. Another team is um, spent, you know, creating this part of the product. Wow. And the other cool thing is we're not just technology focused. We can actually build anything just because we don't actually hire anyone on. We go and recruit the talent. So let's say um, I, I was invited to Forbes Summit um, back in October. Great experience in Cleveland. I can talk about that a bit later. But when I was there, I ran into a um, Forbes lister who was interested in creating like a new type of um, AI powered shoe, something like that. Yeah. And in my mind, I was thinking it's cross disciplinary, but we could go to Caltech 
um, get them to get working on the um, we get Caltech students competing to build the AI part part of it. Yeah. Then we go to LA School of Design to actually get the aesthetics part of the and shoe, the like the base, all that kind of stuff. The actual creation of the physical product, which is super important too. Wow. So that's kind of how I came up with that idea, and you know, came to fruition. That's awesome. I mean, I, because. I've known that you were creating something, but I didn't know exactly. So I've definitely, I've got a couple questions off rip. So first thing, when you say you, you have a competition, is there a winner? Obviously there's a winner, but what does the benefit of the winner get? Like, what do they get? Okay. So typically when we work with a client, it's um, depending on the complexity of the product. Um, but it's anywhere from a 50 to hundred K contract. Okay. So All if right. a client comes in, um, you know, they're like, I want, a you know virtual reality product built for my you know fashion store what have you and they put up you know it's a 100k contract um but the way we do it is only we we take that 100k get all the features they want and then we distribute that money into each feature right so end of the day let's say we only deliver eight of the 10 features then the client only pays for the features that are delivered that are delivered okay okay that's cool and so like each feature correct me if i'm wrong each feature is it's almost its own silo like you were saying in the within exactly. the competition yeah so like like you were saying the the, the ai with with shoes the caltech students would be in one feature of creating the ai exactly. whereas the la design school would be in yeah. one feature creating the design and aesthetics and yeah and bringing the life bringing yeah. the vision to life okay that makes sense so my other question is are you guys for profit non-profit because like how are you getting like how are you yeah. as a company like getting money like what's your revenue like what do you what do you do so um we work in a couple of different ways so with really big so we are for profit okay um if it's a very big client typically what will happen is they themselves will just pay whatever we're asking for like if we're working with someone like disney or you know nvidia whatnot they have the budget to just give us what we need the thing is we started this idea too to be able to help you know, non-technical startup founders who have really dope ideas and who have the business acumen, but not necessarily the technical skills to bring their ideas to fruition. So when we're working with like, you know, early stage startups, we get really creative with the contracts. The most creative contract that um, we've come up with was we're working with a uh, fashion uh, company. Yeah. And they wanted an augmented reality product built um, with computer vision, all that kind of stuff. And we actually de- uh, fulfilled that um, development at our most recent Stanford competition. It was called Immerse the Bay, um, one of the world's largest virtual reality competitions. Um, and the startup founder did not have that much you know, cash. They didn't have like 100K to put up. So yeah. the way that we worked with that was they did a smaller cash sum for the actual contract. Then within the company itself, their company, we got equity. And then we also oh, got license. We got... Okay. Um, we also got royalties, so every um, you know every shirt or pant or blazer or dress that was sold using our product, we would get a certain percentage of that sale. And on top of that, when they start licensing the product to other brands, uh, we also get licensing royalties as well. So it's a almost perpetual contract, right? Their success is tied to our success at this point. Exactly. So you're almost. It's it's. I don't want to say you're not acting as a VC firm because then you guys would be putting money into them. Exactly. So it's, yeah, I don't even know what to call it. Like you said, it's a, it's almost the first of its kind because like yeah. you're not, 
you're not having a series A, series B, yeah. you're not, but you're still, like you said, with this creative contract, like you're retaining some equity as a yeah. form of payment. So you guys are, yeah. you're accepting payment in different things. I think this is really good because it's like people really love exclusivity. Mm-hmm. So when you breed that nature, especially college students, of like, oh, I have this potential to win this amount of money, which is yeah. pretty big considering when you're in college and it's a competition base and you're not going against people that are like eons beyond your knowledge. You're going against people that are like, that are just yeah. in the same. They're, some might be in the same school as you if they're on a different team or some might just be in similar schools or similar structures and it's just like that are in your field. Yeah. So that's huge. And the other cool thing is that you know, with the Stanford competition, the winning team also got some cuts of the royalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get also perpetual licensing rights to a certain degree. Oh, so cool. as you know, I mean, the winning team, um, it was a freshman and like he right out of high school and then like two juniors, I think they were. And now they just, you know, built a product in three days, got it acquired, getting perpetual licensing rights royalty so each time this company sells a shirt they get they, they get, get something to their pocket it. oh wow and <laughs> and you can put that on your resume too <laughs> like yeah the biggest challenge though is convincing clients that you know these people can these kids these competitors can build quality products but honestly the intelligence and creativity i've seen from these competitors i i have not seen in my professional career so far from you know, even the best consultants or developers, it's kind of crazy. Like people think like, what can these, you know, students at you know, whatever school it is know about building a product. But I mean, I'm telling you these engineers or whoever it might be, if we're at a fashion school, they're the best of the best. Um, you know, they've been coding since they're six years old. I mean, end of the day, you know, like Stanford engineers. Um, so yeah, they're, they're young, but doesn't mean they're, inexperienced um and the other thing is too just the creativity and the grind that you get from students is you won't really find that in the real world like these people are more focused on creating a product than the politics and the bureaucracy you find in the professional world that that you bring up a good point there because that's what i was also going to harp on is the fact that the reason why i would think these students are way better for this is because to your point when you're having developers and engineers within the professional setting, at the end of the day, everybody's doing something for a paycheck. So exactly. when they get to the end of the sprint or this, that, the third, like they want to get their money. Exactly. Versus like you have to, even though you guys are going to these schools, like you have to voluntarily choose to be in exactly. this competition, knowing going in that you have to give up your 110%, knowing that there's a possibility that you might not win. Exactly. Because you're going up against other students. Yeah. So like it just makes you work. It breeds this environment where you're you're working even harder. So I think this is that's huge. Mm-hmm. Because like like you said, in the professional setting, it's it, like you you only get as you only get so much productivity. Like not mm-hmm. to say and then also at least um company I work for like outsourcing. So, like, you outsource, like, overseas to do some of the, the dev work. So, it's not necessarily just, like, in-house or it's not mm. it's not just, like, in inside the state. So, it's, it's different. Or you're going to a consulting firm or something like yeah. that. Whereas, 
you're going to colleges where these not and you went to the, some of the best colleges in the country. Yeah. And these kids are hungry and exactly. want to prove themselves and show that they hey, like I'm not just some kid in college, like I can actually yeah. do this. And I mean I think about some of the best technologies or platforms that we have now came from people that were in the top colleges and dropped out and this stuff yeah. the third. So like I don't Yeah, no. I think that that's huge. Yeah. End of the day, you know, they're also getting paid, the college students in their competitions, but exactly. their main goal is not getting paid. Their main goal is winning because um, they're going there. They're not sleeping for three days straight. It's a grind. It's a race against the other 350 other people competing for the exact same paycheck. And when you have that kind of pressure on you, um, you know, you just perform much better. And our main thesis, too, is we don't go we don't work with any clients right it has to be a really innovative barrier pushing product yeah um, which is really different than consulting and consulting you kind of work with any client like you'll work with the irs to do some payment consolidation or you know analytics on their tax records but we're really trying to you know push the boundaries of what we're creating creating novel technologies um so i think that's where the interest from the students come as well it's like you know, end of the day, I get to work with a really innovative company and maybe my product is then becomes part of their company. Um, you no, know, I, I 100 percent agree. Um, one thing that I just thought of, like one little caveat, and I don't know if you guys have vetted this or whatever, or what it looks like with it only being 72 hours. Mm-hmm. What about bug fixes and maybe things that don't go perfectly wrong? Because you could deliver a product realist, just realistically, you could deliver a product and it works fine. Once you present it in front of everybody, yeah. but hey, three hours later, four hours later, a day later, a couple later, a couple weeks later, something like that, something's not is not yeah. working correctly. So, do these teams then kind of like almost stay on with the um, the companies that you guys work with, or, or the creatives that you guys work with to help iron out those bug fixes, or is it more so of like a oh, we give you the code and we give you the rights to everything because they they own it obviously, mm-hmm. and they have their own team or engineers or whoever to fix it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Um, the competitors who make the winning product, they do get the opportunity to stay on um, on a maintenance basis to continue maintaining the product, and they continue getting paid that way. If oh, they don't, okay. we also have our own internal engineering team end of the day. Um, yeah, like, you know, we don't permanently hire on talent, but internally we do have, you know, two, three um, engineers um, that can maintain products as well. Gotcha. Um, so that ensures, you know, long-term uh, for the clients, just their products being maintained. Gotcha. So the longevity of it is, is still yeah. still safe. Okay, cool, cool. All right, awesome. That's really that's really cool, bro. Like, I, I didn't I didn't know this, y'all. So this is, this is news to me. And I get excited about, just like Goku, I have a very entrepreneurship mind and get really excited about stuff. And there might be stuff in the future. I'm not going to spoil anything right now. But anyway... That's just so I love I love talking about that. Um, but pivoting a little bit, can you talk about how I guess did you fund did you did you try to get a funding for the company? Because you said that you talked to two billion or you pitched in front of two billionaires. Yeah. So how did that go? Let's um, talk about that process for a little bit. Yeah. So I guess going even going back to Deloitte, um, I mean even with Athleisure, I had some experience pitching to people trying to get that off the ground. But when I got to Deloitte, um, after like a month at the firm, I had this really cool idea for an internal initiative we could start at the firm. Yeah. And building something like an interesting new 
um, almost subdivision of the company. And I was, you know, I went to a couple of different people. So actually, let me rewind. Last last year in September, uh, September October, when I came to Georgia, yeah, I was with my friend Carter Cote at Georgia Tech, and while we were talking, we had this really cool idea to do a hackathon uh, between Georgia Tech and Deloitte, like a partnered competition. Yeah, and we came up with the idea to do an uh, extended reality, virtual reality competition, and so from there we started like a team. Carter was handling everything on the college side. And then I went to the Deloitte side trying to get investment. Um, so I reached out to a bunch of Atlanta-based partners. Yeah. And a lot of people love the idea. But there's a difference between loving something and then loving something enough to invest your own money into it. Yeah, put in so, money, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, it's like putting your money where your mouth is. So I talked to a bunch of Atlanta partners. And partners in consulting, they're pretty high up. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, I mean, I'm already known. Like you, yeah, no, you, you make partner your. Uh, yeah, you're doing. Let's just say you're doing pretty fine. In life. Exactly, but I met with a bunch of them. They all loved the idea, but no one wanted to pull from their own accounts or budgets to fund the hackathon. Mm-hmm. So I was just running in circles, and after a month, I had no progress. And one of my cousins, who's also at Deloitte, she lives in Washington D.C. She was like, "Why don't you just email the CEO?" <laughs> And <laughs> I was there's, like, there's an idea there for you. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, Deloitte got 500,000 employees. There's one CEO. What's the odd? He reads my email or anything. But she had this cool, interesting idea. She's like, you don't want to email him. You email his executive assistant and get some time on his calendar. Give him a little like paragraph kind of about what you're trying to do. Just enough to get them interested and then get a meeting with him. I said, okay. I emailed the executive assistant, and three days later, to my surprise, I opened up my inbox at an email waiting from her, and she was like, you know, what's your availability? These are um, Dan's availability. Dan's the CEO. This is his availability. And there's a bit of delay, because during the time the World Cup was happening, and he was mm-hmm. actually over in Qatar. Oh, so um, he's having fun. Yeah, yeah having fun. <laughs> um, yeah. But I got some time on his calendar. It was a 15-minute meeting, you know. 15, ooh. That's it, just 15 minutes. You better talk fast. But I got on the call with him. I prepped a little bit with uh, with some people, with my parents, what I was going to say. Um, but, you know, I just started pitching him on the idea. I was like, you know, Georgia Tech's a great school. I think virtual reality, extended reality is the next frontier. Deloitte prides itself as a leader in innovation. So I think it's a great opportunity for us. And, you know, we just kept talking and 15 minutes turned into 20 minutes, turned into 25. At end of it, it was like a 35, 40 minute meeting. He loved the idea. And at that point, I asked him about the budget and he told me, don't even worry about the budget. And since there's a DEI component, diversity, equity, inclusion, he had me uh, connected with the chief DEI officer of Deloitte. Um, but long story short, we ended up doing the hackathon. Great success. It became the largest, world's largest virtual reality competition. And some of the products built at the competition got $500,000 investments. Um, huge, man. Yeah, huge. Um, and yeah, great success. And that's part of the reason I made Next Idea. I saw just in three days, uh, kids with no direction were able to accomplish 
massive, amazing feats of engineering. Um, and I imagined what could happen if we brought in clients with specific visions and guidance and people knew exactly what to build. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's huge. I mean, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't want to, I mean, to cut you off. No, no, I was just going to say, so kind of hopping into pitching. Um, so when I started first initially coming up with the idea of next idea, yeah. um, one of the first people I talked to, uh, his name is Chris Klaus. He was actually one of the main sponsors of um, Immerse GT, the hackathon. So Chris Klaus is a former Georgia Tech student, went there in the 90s, uh, and he started a company called Internet Security Systems, one of the world's first um, um, internet security, yeah, ISS, uh, one of the world's first um, internet security um, companies. And he ended up building that while he was in college. He built it in his dorm at Georgia Tech. And at the age of like 19, after his freshman year, he dropped out of college, went full-time with the company. And he ended up selling it to IBM in 2006 for like $3.2 billion. $3.2 billion? <laughs> yeah. With a B, uh, he's set for life. And funny story, where we actually had the hackathon, the actual venue itself at Georgia Tech, uh, was the computer um, computer engineering building, which is Georgia Tech's like most prestigious biggest school. Yeah. And you want to guess what the school's name is? It has to be Klaus Engineering. Exactly. Yeah. Is it Klaus? It's the Klaus, Klaus School of uh, Advanced Computation. So he even graduate and he has and he has stuff named. And he after. and he had a school named in his uh, name. When you, when you make when you sell a company for three point two billion dollars, that's understandable. So I, I get it. Yeah. But one of the things I really liked about him is he continues fostering that student community at the school he went to, even though he never graduated for there from there, he still has such strong ties to there. And when I first came up with this company idea, I had my friend connect me with uh, Chris Klaus. And yeah, very first meeting I had with him, I was a Zoom call. I just explained my company. We were talking. He liked the idea. He wanted me to flesh it out more. But I remember in that very first meeting, I didn't go into the meeting wanting to pitch it to him. Initially, I have never taken on any venture funding, full disclosure. Yeah. And I'm not looking to either. But in that very first meeting, just went into it trying to get his thoughts. And he immediately asked about investing into the company and um that's when i started thinking you know off the jump if you know this huge investor is trying to invest in just this concept or idea maybe i'm onto something so you know just continued on from there um had our uh, next competition at stanford um did a few partnerships with forbes this summer did two forbes um new lister parties so when the new forbes list comes out they do events next idea partnered with forbes to do two events in la uh two pool parties this summer had all the new listers come out i'm trying to go yeah no definitely uh we're, we have an event on the 29th actually in december i did um, see that i did see that yeah, you should definitely pull up if you're able to but we got a lot more coming up next year I don't know if I if I'll be able to shake December 29th, but yeah. for sure next year I'm just a, just tell me to book my flight. Exactly. I'll do it. But yeah, just through Forbes, got so many great connections and clients, and you know was invited out by the chief editor of Forbes, um, Kristen Stoller, um, to attend the Forbes summit. Even though I'm not a lister, you know, God willing, hopefully maybe next year we'll see. I mean, you're on track. <laughs> like, I mean, this is huge. 
but you know it was a great experience going out to cleveland they did in cleveland this year um you know meeting all the the listers there getting to talk to people you know some of the people have been on the list since the first year that i met the same same year that mark zuckerberg made it some of these people were that class um it was great talking to all those people and really getting to learn about cleveland its culture um you know quick side note for you guys um cleveland's culture is actually crazy when i was there it's referred to as a chocolate city which is just a city that has a lot of history with black culture that's one detroit's another one yeah but when i was there um i went on actually a tour um and went to a church that actually malcolm x and martin luther king both talked in and you know the the guy leading the tour actually stood at the pew and was like you know like 60 70 years ago like mlk malcolm x both stood right here talked to the people of cleveland but you know side note if you guys are ever in the area definitely check out cleveland um check out um do you remember the name of the church uh, I don't remember the name of the church, but the organization that was doing it's called the Third Space Reading Room. Third so Space. So definitely check room. out, shout out Third Space Reading Room. Um, their experience was you sit down and they actually take you through the history of Cleveland while also like it's a multi-course meal. So they bring out like the appetizer, then they give you a bit of history. They bring out like you know the next course then they incorporate that into the history and simultaneously they had like live performance of blues and jazz musicians amazing experience i never would have thought that would have been in cleveland because yeah i think of ohio and cleveland I'm like not much but that's really cool yeah but you know getting back to the uh main story um last time i came to atlanta about three four months ago um about three months ago uh, me and my girlfriend, her brother and her brother's girlfriend, we went out to dinner, this cool restaurant, um, in Atlanta called La Select. And you've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I went to the bathroom, they had some history on the wall. And when I came back, I was telling them about the history, how the restaurant came to be. And the waiter actually came over and he was like, the owner's actually here tonight. And I was like, Oh, I'd like to meet him. Um, and then about 20, 30 minutes later, this uh, guy walks over, full head of white hair. But besides the white hair, like, you would not be able to tell, you know, he's 60 years old. Like, he looked maybe 40, um, super in shape, young guy. But yeah. he sits down immediately, like, one of the most charismatic people I've ever met in my life. And he starts telling me the history of La Select. So back in the 19... 20s post world war one a lot of different people from spain italy they actually immigrated to paris and paris kind of became the main hub of innovation and art mm. you know just this immigrant culture and there's a cafe there called la select that also had an attached apartment and they would ha house residents right and so this cafe became a breeding ground and a hub for just creatives across like famous politicians, musicians, artists, writers, scientists that would come together, discuss their ideas. And the first four residents they had were Pablo Picasso, Ernest Hemingway, 
and F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author of Great Gatsby. Yeah, I love the Great and Gatsby. And this was before they were famous. This was before F. Scott had written uh, Great Gatsby. This was before Picasso had drawn any of his paintings, none of that stuff. So they actually came up with these ideas together. Um, and the owner of uh, La Select, there was no La Select in Atlanta, but when he was vacationing there, when he learned about that, he loved it so much that he ended up buying the restaurant in France and he's like, I want to open up the same one in Atlanta. And, you know, he told me about that idea, how he's built La Select. And he's opening a new uh, nightclub in South Carolina. In Miami, he's opened another nightclub in Atlanta. And at that point, I was like, okay, this guy got money yeah. <laughs> to be doing this kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, this stuff is, you know, not cheap. I love the interior decoration of La Select. I was just wondering, like, you know, have you just been doing this your whole life? How'd you get into this? And he said, yeah, back when I was in college, um, he was at, I think, Florida State University. Um, this, you know, restaurant came to Florida State, uh, the founder. At the time, it was just two people in the restaurant chain. And they're looking for new employees. And he became the third employee to join the company and a co-founder of the company. And I was like, oh, what what restaurant was it? And he said, oh, like, you know, it's just a small restaurant. They always downplay it. They always downplay it. Like, <laughs> what, what restaurant was it? I hate when they do that. So he's like, you know, we at when I joined, there was one location. I joined the team as a co-founder. We grew up to 450 locations. Uh, so you guys might have heard of it. It's called Texas Roadhouse. See, <laughs> see that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I love people that have so much because – there's a charisma like you're saying about yeah. them that's so humbling because they will downplay the hell out of things. They'll be like, "Oh, like yeah, this little I mean, you might have heard it heard it before." And then they'll say a household name like it's nothing. Yeah. So, and you might be able to relate to this too, but you know, he's so charismatic, but the way he was talking was making us feel good. He was saying stuff like, you know, um, you know, I'm glad you guys appreciated it, what I've done to the restaurant. And then when he's talking about the nightclub that he's opening, he's like, we're looking for, you know, people like you to come through, um, you know, just innovative people, really creative. Um, but I ended up getting his number that night because we're actually, you know, we're in the process, you know, after the two Forbes parties, I realized I was really good at connecting people. When I was at the Forbes party, actually, I connected, um, a person who's plugged in at um, Staples Center with someone. So Celeste Derv, she runs all the VIP suites at SoFi Arena, and she was trying to get into Staples Center, and she's really tight with the director. And I knew so one of my friends was trying to get into SoFi, but he knew the owner of Staples Center, Crypto so Arena just... now. So I just connected them, and then I got my friend connected with the owner of SoFi. Now he's plugged in there. And I got Celeste, um, who's also Forbes under 30. But she runs this. She runs all the lounges there. And then her company, what they do is VIP hospitality. So she'll do birthdays for like Kanye West, Kim K. Her client base is her insane. Must go crazy. It's crazy. Her clientele is crazy. But I got her plugged into Staples Center. But... I realized through that event that I wanted to expand beyond just, you know, entrepreneurs. LA is like this melting pot of culture and art and engineering. There's every single kind of industry. 
but the models hang out with the models the actors go to the actor parties the founders go to the founder parties and i realized the coolest most dope innovation comes when you bring people together so after the forbes party i was like i want to do more of these events and bring more diverse groups of successful people like i'm looking for i don't care what your background is but i just want you to come to the event if you've achieved something at the highest level in your industry so you could be a nascar driver you could be a surfer you could be a model you could be an engineer you could be a founder of a billion dollar company so we started working on you know doing these events bringing people together currently working on a gala for 2025 and when i got back to la I had gotten this guy, uh, Texas Roadhouse founder, Dave Green. I got his number when I was at the restaurant. And I ended up scheduling a call with him to talk about this idea um, and how we're starting to do these events. And I want to do this big gala with 6,000 of LA's most influential people, irrespective of their industries. And, you know, I just pitched them on the idea. And I wasn't looking, I was looking for cash investment. Yeah. But from him, I was more looking for like mentorship and just, you know, he'd done nightlife and events at a very high level. So I connected with him on that. So I pitched him on the idea. He really liked it. Um, and then, you know, he gave me a bunch of good contacts. We're still in contact um, to this day. He connected me with like the lighting person for that, you know, NFL Super Bowls, all that kind of stuff. Um but yeah sounds like you got some deep contacts <laughs> yeah it's just kind of uh you know the two billionaires i pitched to um and just keep moving forward from here i uh, got a lot of dope stuff on the horizon um but yeah i you know you know i've taken up i've been talking a lot of this time uh, you know got any questions interesting other things you wanted to add i think i'm just trying to take everything in i feel like all the questions i had you ended up answering them so before we close here, one thing I would, I guess one thing I would ask is like, what do you want to leave the audience with of like, because you had an idea and acted on it and, and really a good living, breathing example of like just kind of putting that first, but then also balancing like you still have your job. So like, what would you say to people right now? Like any little word of advice, like what, what would it be hmm. to people young and old? Because I feel like you don't, there's no set path on when you want to start something or when you want to found something i think my biggest word of advice is that you have to stay strong to what you're trying to build um but at the same time you have to be adaptable right mm. um way back when i first came up with the idea of next idea before that i actually just wanted to raise a vc fund and i connected with someone who was a forbes lister and he kind of tore down the idea poked holes in it and then I was kind of dejected for a little bit, but then I went back to the drawing board, I revamped it, made something actually revolutionary, which was next idea. Then I went back to him, pitched other people. So the main thing is just staying adaptable. And beyond just staying adaptable to your ideas, it's being adaptable to the situations. Just because you never know when an opportunity might come up. When I was at La Select, my my aim for the night was definitely just to you know get dinner with my girl um hang out with uh series started one sec was just to get dinner with my girl you know hang out with her her brother her brother's girlfriend but then when i realized the owner was there and then realized who he was 
you know, you kind of got to be adaptable to the situation. Immediately, I was like, this is a great opportunity for us for our events. Um, you know, that's one example. At Forbes Summit, I met some really cool people. We went out at the nightclub and just at the club ran into the um, editor in chief of Forbes. Um, there's opportunities everywhere. Like, there's been times I've just been like sitting on a bus, the person next to me happens to be like a professional athlete it's just staying adaptable and always be ready because you never know when your moment might be i like that you heard it here stay adaptable always be ready all of the things goku i can't thank you enough for coming on here and really just bringing your wealth of knowledge um this will definitely not be the last time that you guys see him Um, next podcast with him might be us in la um, because i'll be out there sometime next year um but really just once again thank you so much for coming on and really appreciate your time so of course always a pleasure man awesome all right guys so that's another episode um we're kind of in this series of a bunch of uh startups and founding companies things of that nature so there'll be a couple um later on coming through but once again this is i can't be the only one where we say your inner thoughts out loud peace